Hello there, I'm Toby Haydock, and I'll tell everyone about the shit now. Welcome to Too Much Information, my new podcast intent on outlining the who, what and when of Doctor Who, a television programme about getting into trouble and trying not to take it too seriously when you do. This is a podcast for everyone with even the most passing interest in Doctor Who. You might be just about to watch, or indeed have just watched, the episode in question, or you might have seen it a million times and even know the name of the vision mixer, uh, Clive Doig, by the way, and he's a really interesting fellow. I'm going to go through the series in order, outlining the basics and throwing the spotlight onto the unexplored. Hopefully this will act like a one-stop shop for general info, with the odd shelf stacked with strange ephemera you didn't even know you needed till you got here, regarding each and every episode of Doctor Who. I shall be using my little corner of the internet to bombard you with positive ions and to beat happiness into you with facts and observations and names and dates and stuff you didn't even know you cared about. Not that I can guarantee you will once it's all over, but be fair, my heart is pure. And today we start at the second beginning, the broadcast version of An Unearthly Child, the first ever episode Put together after a long genesis, see episode one of this podcast, this is where it all began. So join me, Toby Haydoke, as I give you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, an unearthly child, the actual episode. Or shouldn't we just call social services? Doctor Who, an unearthly child, was first broadcast on the 23rd of November, 1963. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman. It was written by Anthony Coburn, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Waris Hussein. Two very nice school teachers who really should get a room are concerned about a pupil of theirs who is strange, if not quite as strange as she was in the untransmitted pilot. Her knowledge of some subjects embarrasses her teachers, but on others, she is the embarrassment. Insight and ignorance go hand in hand. The teachers follow her home to a junkyard in Totter's Lane, and she disappears. But that's not all because amongst the menagerie of trinkets stands a police box which seems to hum with power. Their investigations are interrupted by a grumpy, but not quite as grumpy as in the untransmitted pilot, old man who claims to be the owner of the junkyard, but denies all knowledge of the pupil, Susan, until her voice is heard from inside the box. And so begins the very first episode of Doctor Who. It's a truly remarkable piece of television, and I hope you think so too. I mean, I'm not sure the programme has ever been better. You heard it here first. It's been downhill all the way since then. But let's get down to the nitty-gritty and see what makes this episode tick. And we'll begin with... The When. Much of the story and content planning for this episode was actually done in preparation for the untransmitted pilot, so please see episode one of Too Much Information and its accompanying supplemental episode. So for us, the pilot has been recorded on Friday the 27th of September, 1963, and so our first stop is Monday the 30th of September. Sidney Newman, the BBC's head of drama, has viewed the finished results of the first attempt to make the show. Not a man to hold back his feelings, he has noted down everything that he thinks are its shortcomings. Let's take a look at his notes. First up, he says, Keep main title at large. Music to be very loud. Well, the titles don't actually change. They're done. 
but the music is a slight re-edit when it comes to the subsequent broadcast, though to my ears it isn't as loud nor as hauntingly echoey. The thunderclap is definitely gone, though. Uncup, more mysterious, he says of the opening scene. Well, there's fog added to the eventual episode, and the camera moves are different. So is the policeman, but it's not for me to say if Reg Cranfield, who now plays the part, looks more mysterious than Fred Rawlings, who essayed the role in the pilot. Newman is pretty insistent that Carol Ann Ford shouldn't be shot in profile. Bad profile, he says, and again, lay off her profiles, and later... Three shot of girl in profile and them upstage facing the camera but out of focus. He also declares her to be too dour. Can she be more cheeky? He asks. He also doesn't get what Susan's inkblot business, during which she folds and augments the pattern so that it looks like the TARDIS console, is all about. What does she draw? He asks. What the story needs here is something to suggest that she is odd to end the scene on an enigmatic note but the TARDIS Rorschach picture is not quite the right thing. This eventually becomes, presumably thanks to script editor David Whittaker, the moment where she looks at the book that Barbara has given her. The first thing she does upon opening it, like a true Doctor Who fan, is to look at a bit and declare it to be inaccurate. Uh, this, by the way, was one of the last additions to the script. The book is about the French Revolution, although presumably she will cross that out and correct it to the reign of terror when no one is looking. When we get to the junkyard, Sidney Newman feels that we need to see word police on police box before Hero does. And later, must see top of box. Chief among his problems is the character of the Doctor. The old man is not funny enough and ain't cute enough. As for the school teachers, he's not sure that they react enough as if an old man has locked a girl in a box. When the door opens, he says of the reveal that Susan is inside the blue box, must have brief pause to really hear music. In fact, should see their faces. In the end, we don't hear the music at all. Entrance not good, he says, in the understatement of 1963, until an onlooker says next month, oh, I don't think the president looks very well. The entrance is a disaster, so disastrous they did it three times. This sequence will obviously require a lot of attention come the remount. In the TARDIS, Newman is still on the lookout for profiles of Susan and isn't happy when he sees one upon her delivery of the line, you shouldn't have come here, which she may as well have addressed to Newman himself if he's going to keep banging on about her face. Must be a decided change in sound or music between inside and outside. The sound effects in the TARDIS are all largely altered come broadcast. The ship's interior hum is a new sound effect, replacing the original one, which is now used in parts for the doors closing, which was a silent action in the pilot. When he tries door, see exterior of box shaking. Newman is referring to the TARDIS when Ian attempts to get in, and so becomes the first person in history to refer to Doctor Who's shaky scenery. Sadly, he won't be the last. I don't have time to find and kill them all. I'm sorry. What's the point in panning from back view to back view? He asks, clearly not impressed with the staging of the takeoff, which is a far more alarming affair than in the finished version, though, thankfully, never again, otherwise every story would have to begin with the travellers regaining consciousness. It means that instead of the Doctor and Susan's slightly stagey, but nevertheless quite neat-looking, synchronised turn away from the monitor, from the pilot which they certainly look like they planned to do in the broadcast episode as well, as there's a shot of Caroline Ford in her Susan costume from the transmitted version and William Hartnell doing that same movement. Now it might be that they do and we don't see it because we instead favour Ian and Barbara doing their swaying unsteadiness acting, which results in Ian slowly lowering himself to the floor and Barbara ending up in a conveniently placed chair, just like she did in the pilot. Perhaps it was in her contract. Newman also wants the camera to tremble during the takeoff, and he thinks the closing credits are too big and need to roll faster. Over the executive, this last one isn't really acted upon, until more recently in the 21st century, when you could suggest that perhaps they've gone a little too far in that direction. Newman breaks the news to Lambert and Hussein, apparently over a Chinese meal, that they will have to shoot the whole episode again. 
This isn't as unprecedented a switcheroo as it's often described. There was always this possibility built into the series planning. They are working hard to get this right. But although it has been planned as a 52-week serial, it hasn't actually been given the formal go-ahead for more than four. And at around this time, Peter Brahatsky, the designer of the pilot, who does not get on especially well with Lambert and Hussein, and who seems to think little of Doctor Who, despite coming up with a TARDIS interior design, the key elements of which survive to this day, leaves the project. He is unwell anyway, but the writing was on the roundels that he wouldn't be sticking around. Barry Newbury takes over and has to rework the sets from the pilot as, despite Lambert's instructions to the contrary, the sets from the pilot have been junked, apart from the spaceship interior because, well, you know, the TARDIS is indestructible. 4th of October. Carol Ann Ford has a fitting for a new costume to replace the butterfly chemise and shiny tank top combo from the pilot. She opts for a simpler but funky black and orange striped top from designer Mary Quant for the top half, something from her own wardrobe. She'd hoped to wear the matching leggings that go with it, but this is judged an outfit too far, so she has more sober accoutrements from the waist down. The top will return several times, including for her last story. And she wears it in the 1966 film The Great St Trinian's Train Robbery, where you can see it in colour if you like. 9th of October. Three days of filming takes place for the later episodes of this serial, which require the main cast and some cavemen. This will be covered in more detail in later episodes. 10th of October. Not for the last time, Doctor Who seems to be resented by various departments within the BBC and is under-resourced. Head of Serials Donald Wilson, whose name is on the creation document of Doctor Who alongside that of Sidney Newman, so in many ways the show is his baby too, writes an impassioned, in a BBC kind of way, memo to Sidney Newman, to Head of Programmes Donald Bavistock, Head of Planning Joanna Spicer and Head of Design Dick Levin, outlining his concerns about the special effects effort the programme will need. I do not know what normal Saturday afternoon series level may mean, but if it means that the effort required to build a spaceship for Doctor Who is abnormal, then it seems to me that I should have been told so, and I would have then informed everybody that the serials could not be done on those terms, and we should therefore have to withdraw the project. He points out that outside contractors were brought in to get the pilot ready, and that some of this work was substandard. In order to make Doctor Who work without relying on shoddy outsourcing, a large weekly sum of money over and above the agreed budget will be necessary. The main actors have been contracted a little ahead and scripts are in development for a couple more stories. If they are, as planned, to begin recording weekly from October the 18th without a decision being made about the future and without a serious review of resources, a break in production will be required and the actors will effectively be being paid to do nothing. This is beyond the pale, and so Wilson suggests committing to at least 11 episodes on the strength of the pilot, though from a budgeting point of view he would prefer a commitment of 18. He predicts that future episodes will be better, but that... In my professional opinion, what we have here is something very much better in both content and in production value than we could normally expect for this kind of money and effort. A ringing endorsement, then, and a boost for the team, even though the future is still very uncertain. The only certainty is that if the show goes ahead, it will be more expensive than hoped for. 12th of October. Rehearsals begin for the remount of An Unearthly Child. These take place at the Drill Hall, 239 Uxbridge Road, which is not far from Lime Grove Studios. The building, by the way, still stands as of November 2020. In fact, I'm recording this on November the 23rd, 2020. Of course I am. And the building is currently social housing and offices for the Hammersmith and Fulham Learning and Skills Service. 16th of October. Wilson's plea has paid off. Sort of. On the basis of the pilot, Donald Bavistock gives the go-ahead for not 18, but not 11 either. 13 episodes is what Doctor Who's first lease of life is. 
he asks forward planning manager John Mayer to assess what extra cost allowance will be needed to realise Doctor Who's special effects in the studio. Upon receipt of this, Bavistock will decide if he can countenance a raise in the show's budget. 18th of October Lime Grove Studio D The episode that will become the first televised instalment of Doctor Who is recorded. It costs £2,476, which in 2020 money is £48,548.50. This time, John Smith and the Common Men go right the way up the charts. An inkblot is replaced by a history book, and the two time travellers have somewhat different characterizations and wardrobes. Although his ship is indestructible, Doctor Who himself seems less so. Donald Bavistock is about to go on leave, but before he does, he leaves a memo in the form of some piss on the chips of Donald Wilson. Bavistock states that the expenditure of the pilot and likely effects requirements of the rest of the story will result in a likely overspend of as much as £1,600 and an excess of man-hours by as many as 1,200 per episode. Man-hours is a BBC term encompassing staff usage measured in hourly allocation rather than cost because staff are salaried so their measurements are about distribution rather than price. Bavistock has arrived at these figures by averaging the expenditure of £4,000 on the spaceship over 13 episodes, which he says allows for only £3,000 to be spent on the expensive space creatures and other special effects. It does not take into account the extra costs involved in the operation of special effects in the studio. Last week I agreed to an additional £200 to your budget of 2300 he continues alarmingly. For the first four episodes, this figure is now revealed to be totally unrealistic. The cost of these four will be more than £4,000 each, and it will be even higher if the cost of the spaceship has to be averaged over four rather than thirteen episodes. Such a costly serial is not one that I can afford for this space in the financial year. You should not therefore proceed any further with the production of more than four episodes. He has asked Spicer and Mayer, hardly the show's biggest fans at this stage, to determine the exact realistic costs of this series so far and the costs we should have to face if we were to continue. But, he says, while he is away, he wants Wilson to marshal ideas and prepare suggestions for a new children's drama serial at a reliably economic price. There is a possibility that it will be wanted for transmission from soon after week one of 1964. So... Whilst the images of the first episode are still wet on the studio tapes, the Doctor has been prescribed a potentially lethal injection. 22nd of October. John F. Kennedy doesn't know it, but he has only one month to live. Currently, though, his life expectancy is healthier looking than Doctor Who's, as John Mayer sends Joanna Spicer a memo outlining the show's wayward budget. The ship in particular is a sticking point. Mayer notes that it was meant to cost £500, but that Lambert had eventually settled on £3,000, with another £1,000 on top of that eventuating when it had been completed. Wilson, apparently, had always planned that this cost be amortised over the whole 52-week run, in order to keep individual episode budgets on par. Amortised, by the way, means to write off the initial cost of something over a period of time, or to reduce a bill or debt with regular payments. In BBC drama terms, this meant to pay for something expensive in, say, the first episode of a 13-part series, not by taking the cost out of episode one's budget, but instead a bit at a time from each episode across the series. Mayer and Spicer hold a meeting with, amongst others, Lambert, Wilson and Special Effects Department head Jack Kine. Bavistock, says Spicer, will let them have 13 episodes, but only if they are financially feasible. She lays down the gauntlet. Can Wilson and Lambert make the show on a budget of £2,500 per episode, of which £75 per instalment will be docked to go towards the money already spent on the spaceship interior? £200 per episode will go to outside contractors for effects and or models, and £500 per episode will be the design department's allocation. 
Wilson and Lambert say it can be done and head off for a week of number crunching with their team. 25th of October. Spicer sends Wilson and Lambert a memo outlining the budgetary model with which they are expected to make Doctor Who. On the 29th of October, they meet with her and agree to abide by this. 30th of October. So, just as it's all looking settled then, James Moody, head of Scenic Servicing, informs Spicer that the problems highlighted in June about the demands the series was placing on his department haven't gone away. In the circumstances, you may wish to call a halt to the series before the output of the service as a whole is jeopardised by this production. Oh yeah, the BBC has always just loved Doctor Who. 31st of October. The film The World Ten Times Over is released, starring June Ritchie and Sylvia Sims as good-time girls in swinging 1963 London. Its depiction of decadent nightlife and its sapphic undertones draw sniffs from many critics. Perhaps prostitutes aren't as interesting to the public as picture makers seem to think, sniffs one paper, whilst the Daily Mirror finds it dated. The Mirror do, however, find time to praise Ritchie and the actor playing her father, who... Act for all they are worth. That actor is William Hartnell about to migrate from the big to the small screen permanently, without a prostitute or a lesbian, for now, in sight. 14th of November. William Russell, Jacqueline Hill and Caroline Ford are seen in character when a publicity still for the episode is printed in the Radio Times for the week before transmission, published today. 16th of November. The public sees its first moments of Doctor Who at 5.41pm, when a trailer for the series is broadcast on BBC One. 21st of November. The Radio Times publishes a half-page preview and in its listings calls the programme An Adventure in Space and Time, a sentence that will hang around for quite some time. They also print a photo of Hartnell and Ford out of costume. On this day... The cast and some of the production team attend the series launch at room 222 of the BBC's building in Langham Place. Several photos featuring the regulars and sometimes Verity Lambert toasting with wine glasses, uh, beer for Mr Hartnell, are taken today and will resurface over the years, becoming very familiar to Doctor Who fans. Sadly lost now is the radio trailer for the show, performed by its star, which was broadcast today and went something like this. My name is William Hartnell, and as Doctor Who, I make my debut on Saturday the 23rd of November at 5.15. The Doctor is an extraordinary old man from another world who owns the time and space machine. He and his granddaughter Susan, played by Carol Ann Ford, have landed in England and are enjoying their stay until Susan arouses the curiosity of two of her school teachers, played by William Russell and Jacqueline Hill. They follow Susan and get inside the ship, and Doctor Who decides to leave Earth, starting a series of adventures which I know will thrill and excite you every week. 22nd of November. In Dallas, Texas, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, 35th President of the United States, is assassinated at 12.30pm Central Standard Time, so half past six in the UK. He is pronounced dead at 1pm, and this is announced at 1.33, and so in the UK, 7.33pm. The cast and crew of Doctor Who are recording episode two of The Daleks, The Survivors, but that's a story for a later edition. Doctor Who's first episode is due to be transmitted 24 hours after this catastrophe, but this event would overshadow that debut and have certain transmission ramifications. Two more deaths of people who would perhaps influence Doctor Who rather more, Brave New World writer Aldous Huxley and Narnia creator C.S. Lewis, also occur this day. There's another trailer for Doctor Who broadcast on TV today. 23rd of November, 1963. On this day, the world reels from the news of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, but other things were happening too. Birthday celebrations are for 49-year-old Roger Avon, 
later Safadin in The Crusade, Daxstar in The Daleks' Master Plan, and Wells in the second Peter Cushing Dalek movie, and 47-year-old Michael Goff, later the Celestial Toymaker and Hedin in Ark of Infinity. But their parties are doubtless somewhat muted. Doctor Who is broadcast at 5.15, after an edition of Grandstand. Straight afterwards, it is surrealist comedy puppetry from The Telegoons, followed by The News and then Jukebox Jury, in which a panel of celebrities decide the fate of the latest pop hits. A disappointing 4.4 million viewers tune in, placing it 114th in the weekly chart. Its appreciation figure is 63%. The average for TV drama is 62 and for children programmes is 64. So this is considered par, even though the judging panel is smaller than usual because many people in the appreciation sample do not watch the show due to the news coming in from the US. Of that sample, comments included that it was Good, clean fun, and I look forward to meeting the nice Doctor's interplanetary friends next Saturday. The report's conclusion is that most viewers declared Doctor Who an enjoyable piece of escapism not to be taken too seriously. There is the usual criticism to be expected from self-declared science fiction sceptics. A police box with flashing beacon travelling through interstellar space? What claptrap? And a suggestion that Doctor Who would never quite escape, that it is too strong for more timid children. Generally, though, the report concludes that an unearthly child is a good start to a series which gave promise of being very entertaining. The acting is praised, with a number of responders adding that it was pleasant to see William Hartnell again in the somewhat unusual role, for him, of Doctor Who. There is praise, too, for the sound effects which create the appropriate out-of-this-world atmosphere, and the time travel sequence is singled out for special praise, being particularly well done. The fallout from all of this is that it is decided at the regular meeting of the BBC Programme Review Board on the 27th of November that the episode should be repeated the following week to bring people up to speed before the broadcast of the second episode, except people in Northern Ireland who just had to guess. Six million viewers tune into the repeat, moving it up to 85th in the channel's chart. 5.9 million then stick around for the Cave of Skulls, vindicating this last-minute scheduling shake-up. The episode is also repeated on the 2nd of November 1981, the beginning of a week-long rerun of the first story for the Five Faces of Doctor Who season, bridging the gap between Doctors 4 and 5. 4.6 million viewers watched this BBC Two repeat, placing it 8th in the channel's charts. It is also shown on BBC Four on the 21st of November 2013, to tie in with BBC Two's transmission of docudrama An Adventure in Space and Time. Told you that description would stick around. The Watt. The whole an adventure in space and time thing, by the way, the descriptor, is a clarifying byline suggested by the aforementioned Joanna Spicer, head of planning, and often a target of stick in Who history due to her formidable ways. But she felt the show needed something of this kind so that viewers didn't think they were tuning into a medical show like Dr Kildare. It was a descriptor that would hang around in space for quite some time. I talked in detail about the programme's opening titles last time, but whilst delving into the minutiae about which technician was where and what light source they might have used and which production the opening shaft of light was sourced from, I neglected to mention the other face on the monitor, because clearly they're in a senior position when those shapes for the titles were recorded, was associate producer Mervyn Pinfield. He must have been taking an interest in the sort of technically pioneering stuff that it was his brief to bring to the show. Verity Lambert later went on to credit him with some of the breakthroughs in putting the title sequence together, so he was clearly calling at least some of the shots during this experimental process 
and so he deserves a mention here. Well, he deserves a mention in the previous episode, but then I'd have to go back and redo the whole thing and, well, insert your own joke. But look, covering two episodes where often the same sources produce different results is a tricky process, and I also run the risk of repeating myself, so it's all been a bit of a juggle. Bear with me. Now listen, I outlined some of the changes between the pilot and this episode in the first instalment of Too Much Information, which looks at that untransmitted first go. So I shall try not to go over that ground here, but if on occasion I do, don't worry, I will be less alien and the policeman hanging around outside my house will be played by a different actor. So whilst hopefully we're familiar with the differences between the pilot and the broadcast episode, it might be interesting to look at what we see on screen and how it differs from the script credited writer Anthony Coburn submitted, and so therefore how much was rejigged by the team, producer Verity Lambert, script editor David Whittaker, associate producer Mervyn Pinfield and director Warris Hussain, as they decided what the show was and who its characters were. However, the first thing to notice about An Unearthly Child is visual. The first scene, with its newly drafted constable, also gets extra atmosphere thanks to the use of fog gun number three, the same one used in the pilot, but here clearly turned up to eleven. Echoing the pilot, the doors to the junkyard open of their own accord. Whatever alien force is operating to open large gates in order to allow a BBC camera creaky access has never to this day been revealed. This magical opening concerned production assistant Douglas Camfield, from whom we will hear a lot later on when he becomes one of the show's best and most prolific directors, but it was suggested in the script. Nothing quite like it has happened in the programme since, almost as if the show knows it can get away with it just this once, because, well, we're making history in it. As we get to Coal Hill School, we are, unlike the pilot, given its name with a pithy visual info dump in the form of a school notice board which has been added to the corridor set. The school children extras are the same as those used in the pilot, grabbed from the Corona stage school. The girls in the corridor, interrupted by a guy who seems to be doing an impression of Kenneth Williams, are actually looking at a picture of Frank Ifield. Ifield is an Australian entertainer who had come to the UK in 1959 and his yodelling style had conjured a number of hits in the charts, including I Remember You and Lovesick Blues, both 1962, The Wayward Wind, March 1963, and confessing that I love you, September 1963, when the pilot was recorded. At the time of the making of this podcast, Ifield, back in Australia and a recipient of many awards, including the Medal of the Order of Australia in 2009, will shortly celebrate his 83rd birthday. It's not known what Kenneth Williams guy says, nor what the dark-haired beauty whispers in response into her friend's ear, but it's clear from her arched eyebrow that she's seen his willy and it's very small, or something along those lines anyway. Barry Newbury, as mentioned earlier, has to rebuild the sets from Peter Bahatsky's plans because the originals, bar the TARDIS interior, have been dismantled and not kept. Lambert knowing a remount would be possible, did actually ask for them to be kept, but the design department simply ignored her. Storage is expensive and can't be justified because of a possible remount, and the school, the street and the junkyard are all broken down at the end of September. This is not as awful as it sounds, as various things such as the doors and the junkyard gates are stock pieces which reside at the BBC anyway, called up and repainted to order, and so they're not junked with the other bits of the sets. Following on from Newman's comments, the changes made to the script are presumably done mostly by David Whittaker. Whittaker has definitely not especially enjoyed writer Anthony Coburn's take on Ian, 
and he tones down the potential relationship stuff as well. For example, Ian and Barbara's exchange in the classroom, which is initially loaded with romantic promise when written by Coburn. Ian, for example, tells Barbara rather leadingly that Where I am living at the moment, there's nothing to do and no one to do it with. I was wondering how your situation differs from mine. Barbara tantalises him back. There is, she says, no difference. Ooh la la. Get a room, you two. Just not a classroom. There's also a suggestion in the Coburn script that Barbara may have been a bit tipsy when she followed Susan home, hence her confusion. In this, the broadcast version, when the teachers have their tete-a-tete with unearthly child Susan, she no longer talks about the English fog. It's just the dark now, which is ironic, seeing as there's little fog in the pilot and more in this version. And Susan is generally less of a misty-eyed space juve than she was in the pilot. It is easy to see why Carol Ann Ford felt that what she ended up having to play was far less interesting than the oddball, otherworldly teeny bopper she was presented with at DW Day, especially as even that was a toned-down version of the pre-pilot script that she'll likely have been presented with initially. In the original script, she is even more alien in places. For example, when showing no interest in distance travelled, as part of the problem Ian has set her in the class, which is different from the one that we get here, he asks her if she wants to break into the fourth dimension, and as a result, she goes white and trembles. Also in Coburn's original conception of Susan, she has a more refined accent than her school friends, so sticks out, doesn't fit in. At some points in the development, actually, she's not the Doctor's granddaughter or even, for a while, his travelling companion. She is also originally a bit closer to Barbara. They aren't so far apart age-wise, and the two were to have started at Coal Hill School on exactly the same day. Whilst Barbara originally is not so close to Ian, she even calls him Mr Chesterton. Ian, however, is for Whitaker much too much of a tough guy in these scripts, and between him and presumably the qualities William Russell brings to the part, having listened to the music Susan is playing on her radio, which was supposed to take place in a music room, but that got changed in order to avoid building a third classroom set, Ian was to reveal his knowledge of modern pop. At this point, though, at the point of writing, Susan's tune was not the work of John Smith, a.k.a. the Right Honourable Aubrey Waits, a.k.a. Chris Waits and his carolers, but instead of one Ollie Typhoon, a.k.a. Fred Grubb. And instead of just making Susan dance weirdly, Typhoon's tunes brought about a much more alarmingly, shall we say, awakened response from Susan. Sing it again, Ollie. Sing it again for me, she trills. Once she realises she has company, she tells her teachers that Typhoon has taught her to, um, <clears throat> throb. Fortunately, the only throbbing done in the eventual episode is by the TARDIS. The music Susan is listening to on her radio is called Three Guitars Mood 2. It was composed by Johnny Arthy with his friend Derek Nelson in 1961. Arthy was born John Raymond Arthy and sometimes performed as Raymond Arthur, which is why Three Guitars Mood 2 is often erroneously billed as being done by the Arthur Nelson group, but it's definitely Arthy Nelson. Johnny died in 2007. Derek Nelson was also part of the Nelson Trio in 1961, and he composed Russ Conway's single, Roll the Carpet Up. Still, in the classroom with her teachers, after Susan says of the dark that it's mysterious, in the broadcast episode we cut from a close-up of Susan to a three-shot, and here the positioning has changed slightly. This is because shock horror of a recording break which was unplanned and unusual, so something went wrong, and probably quite badly so, to necessitate this. What, though? We have no idea. Perhaps Caroline Ford said something like, you know, I think she should say 2 to 19, it makes her much more alien, 
but we'll never know. In the original script, Ian says to Susan at one point, leaning against the fourth wall and tipping a wink as he does so, You're above average in science, Susan. You should stick to that and leave science fiction to the writers. Well, the script editor clearly thought the writers were answerable to somebody and lopped that bit out. Susan commenting, that's not right, having looked at the French Revolution book that Barbara has given her, is a change from the pilot, in which she draws a weird Rorschach ink drawing of the TARDIS console, something that was always going to go if Newman's notes are any indication, but her line at the end of the scene is a very late addition to the script. Having got rid of the idea that Barbara might have been drunk when following Susan home, now it's the turn of cigarettes to join alcohol on the banned list. Ian, you see, is supposed to be a smoker, and he remains one in the book of Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks, which reframes the meeting between the teachers and the time travellers. That's another story. Barbara, thankfully, never smokes in any iteration of this episode. She was sensible even when she was just an idea. As a result of Ian's kicking the weed, however, the prop matches and lighter ordered for Ian for the pilot but struck off its props list, aren't even considered for the recording of this episode. And Ian not having any matches is explicitly stated, as it is realised, relatively late on in the production of the pilot, that the presence of either match or lighter would scupper the fire plot later on in the story. When we get to the junkyard in the original script, the encounter played by the teachers and the doctor was to have been witnessed by Susan on the scanner, prompting her to come out and intervene, afraid that Doctor Who will send the teachers away and abandon 1963. Upon seeing her, Ian and Barbara push their way in, and so an adventure in space and time begins. Instead, though, we just hear her call out to her grandfather. Even the repetition of her music playing is cut in this final broadcast iteration. It's a much more simplified way of having the teachers discovered that she is in there, even though Retrospect tells us she was pretty daft not to look on the scanner rather than just call out from a box it looks like she's been kidnapped in. But at this stage, we don't notice, and frankly, that's all that matters. There's a recording break between Barbara entering the TARDIS prop and then being seen coming into the interior from inside. Hussein shoots Ian and Barbara's entry into the TARDIS from much closer up this time, which makes the shift from one set to the other work much better. Peter Brahatsky had hoped to sell the illusion of a continuous movement between the junkyard and the TARDIS sets by having an identical set of police box doors made, mounted in a frame to stand outside the interior doors, much like the modern post-2005 TARDIS. Whilst these were used in the pilot, the idea ended up being deemed impractical. And the idea was abandoned for the re-recording. The doors are pretty problematic, just as they are. Still, it shows he had the right idea this early on. Although the BBC hung on to them, where they doubtless mooched about bitching to other doors about how they'd been denied their big TV break. They do eventually get their chance at Who Immortality during the climax of episode 4 of The Massacre, in the film sequence in which Dodo mistakes the TARDIS for an actual police box, with the time machine represented by a rather odd collection of random panels hurled together on location by, it seems, a madman. Changes to the TARDIS exterior between the pilot and the broadcast episode include it not causing a pulsing light to blink in the opening junkyard shot, in which it also has a less overt humming sound emanating from it, and later the Doctor does not open it with his torch. Inside, there are some differences too, but the set itself has never quite had everything designer Peter Brahatsky has envisaged for it. He had wanted the screen depicting the TARDIS scanner to descend from the ceiling, but this is abandoned relatively early on. In the end, it is a static mounted monitor. The roundels were originally to have been surrounded by stenciled hexagons, so that they look more like a honeycomb, which would have made the closed doors blend in with the wall more, giving more of a claustrophobic feel and making sense of the idea that Ian and Barbara can't see where the closed doors are when they decide to leave. 
The non-roundled part of the wall, by the way, is there simply because of the shape of Studio D Lime Grove, which has a right-angled recess at that point, which has to be covered up somehow. The TARDIS set features a huge hexagonal unit, also in the pilot, that is intended to represent the ship's power source. This was something that was evidently repurposed from Brahatsky's original designs for the TARDIS interior, and was actually the top part of the hexagonal columned booth that was supposed to be standing on the floor just in front of the doors, along with a hinged three-sided screen. It seems that all this floor-standing gubbins was abandoned, as it would have just cluttered up the already expensive set even more. It's a massive, cumbersome thing, surely a huge construction job, part of a set which cost an awful lot of money and had to have its cost spread across the series as we've learnt, and yet this part of it is decommissioned pretty quickly. Still, at least it made it this far. Several pieces of scenery from the pilot have not. A glass birdcage and a small round table from the pilot are gone. An armchair and a throne, which come in to replace the seat used during the first attempt, will actually stay with the show on and off for much of the early years and can be spotted often by the eagle-eyed. They're like the Pat Gorman of the furniture world. Since the pilot an additional bank of computers and switches has been added on the walls. They now know that the next serial will require a fault locator, which for some reason won't reside on the central column, and so an extra area of instrumentation will be required and is therefore added now. The central console has also been rebuilt since the pilot, with switches in different positions and a modified central column. Brahatsky's original idea was that the switches be moulded to the Doctor's hands so that only he can operate them, an idea occasionally mooted subsequently in the series when needed, and the central column was intended, he had hoped, to rise to its full height, and then the internal mechanism would slowly spin around with lights and mirrors. But this was never quite achieved. The simpler console we end up with is actually a slight green colour, which looks more like white, for the black and white cameras of the time. The large pictured flats standing in as walls in the TARDIS are sheets of plastic with holes drilled in, photographed and then blown up to match the vacuum-formed PVC roundels of the doors. They, or a variation of them, have remained an integral part of the TARDIS design to this day. When the Doctor, in a more Victorian costume than the suit he sports in the pilot, activates the TARDIS for takeoff, there is a new music cue, but other than that, all the sounds come from the pilot. The weird, jangly wind chimes and almost coughed, hacking white noise that greet the TARDIS takeoff in the pilot have been replaced with plinky-plonked percussion music and a protracted rocket takeoff, ascending kind of noise. There's much less of the scraping, wheezing and groaning that we now associate with the TARDIS takeoff, although it is there prominently in the early part of the sequence. In the Coburn script, the shadow at the climax of the episode is to raise its arm, holding a club, suggesting violent intent. It's more mysterious, but no less arresting, in that final beautiful shot of the TARDIS, light blinking on a blasted heath. A heath brimming with the promise of a faraway alien world, but the reality of which, as viewers will discover in the next episode, is rather closer to home, geographically, if not chronologically. We'll have to hang on a few weeks for aliens, but boy, they'll be worth the wait. The closing titles now have a caption saying, Next episode, The Cave of Skulls. Originally, it was to say, Next week but this is changed just in case overseas stations have different scheduling in mind. The pilot, you'll have noticed, has no such caption at all. Oh, and William Hartnell actually has quite a noticeable birthmark on his cheek, which is covered by makeup this week and every week. This episode, we're going to concentrate on the designer, Peter Brahatsky. 
Peter Brahatsky was taken ill between the recording of the pilot and the transmitted version of An Unearthly Child, but he retains his designer credit on this episode. And so he established the crucial interior look of the TARDIS and the footprint of its very first episode, but then, despite being a BBC staff designer for many years to come, never found himself in the show's orbit again. Verity Lambert and Warris Hussain both subsequently said he was demonstrably uninterested in the show and that they were much happier when Barry Newbury stepped into the breach and became a semi-regular designer with the show during the 1960s. But as ever, the story and the person is perhaps more complex than a two-line precy and a hurried encounter during a hectic 1963 production block. Kazimierz Pietro Jerzy Brahatsky was born on the 30th of January 1926 on the Polish border. Peter left home as a teenager in order to evade being rehoused and Germanized by the Nazis and spent his teenage years in Krakow. He was obliged to work for the Germans when their army occupied Krakow, but he joined the Polish underground resistance, becoming a second lieutenant aged around 16. He eventually headed for Switzerland, but having negotiated his way through Czechoslovakia, Austria and Germany, he was arrested, and there's a suggestion he might have been involved in some shady, high-end anti-Nazi shenanigans, and he was put in a civil prison and tasked with digging unexploded bombs out of the snow, before being transferred to the infamous concentration camp Dachau, where he was imprisoned for four months until liberation in 1945. Now aged 19, he decided not to return to Poland, but instead decided to gain some education in Rome, where he studied at the Collegio Romano, and a year later he headed for Liverpool, apparently by mistake. He said he had intended to go to North Africa, but got on the wrong boat. Classified as a displaced person, he was temporarily interned but thanks to a Polish Treasury grant, he was able to attend Slade School of Art in London, where he studied sculpture. He did very well at the Favour School, winning a number of prizes, but work was not easy to come by upon graduation. He was not hugely confident in his own abilities, nor was he very good at putting himself forward for things. For a while, in 1951, he was temporarily employed working at the new Festival Hall on the South Bank as a marble mason, but he also worked as a lamplighter, literally that, lighting the gas lamps still in use at that time on the Thames embankment. He also worked at the Teller's Meat Pie Factory for a while, so if you had one of those in your lunch, it was possibly made by a future creator of TV history. Having obtained British naturalisation in 1952, he moved to Canada, where he started working for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation as a stagehand, he then moved into the graphics department and became a designer at the Vancouver station CBUT Channel 2. He returned to Britain in 1958. He still wanted to visit family in Poland and Canada was just too far away and he applied for a job at the BBC where he found some sympathy from head of design Richard Levin, himself of Eastern European descent, and became a staff designer in around 1959, working as an assistant. He worked on the likes of Crackerjack, The Ricky Fulton Show, It's a Square World and The Choice is Yours, none of them drama, note, and he confessed to prefer light entertainment to drama, before being assigned to a programme called Doctor Who. And so we get to the Peter Brakaki of Doctor Who legend, the not very interested, patronising, dismissive contributor who nonetheless came up with the best spaceship interior the show could possibly have hoped for and the one it still has. His departure from Doctor Who was actually caused by ill health, maybe a contributory factor to his mood, due to recurrent duodenal ulcer, a hangover problem from life in a concentration camp, a life which caused both physical and mental side effects, which never went away. Some context too, then, to his diffidence. He was slightly self-conscious of his Polish accent, and so was a bit of a loner, who became stressed in high-pressure situations. He never told colleagues about having been in a concentration camp, 
he already felt like an outsider and thought that such a confession would only compound that impression. Some things were simply not talked of. Having an accent was hard enough, and no one could pronounce his name, so he was known as Peter Brackett during his time at the corporation. He met his future wife the year after Doctor Who. Gabby Corbett was an art student, but she eventually freelanced for the BBC, working full-time only after Peter had left. While they were both there, she worked under her maiden name. But once he had gone, Gabby Brahatska's name was allowed to appear, and does so, on episodes of the likes of Roland Rat the series and the sitcom Three Up, Two Down. She also worked, uncredited, as a design assistant to Paul Allen on Doctor Who, in the Tom Baker story The Horror of Fang Rock, keeping it in the family. Peter, however, never returned to the show. But his television credits for the BBC continued, and he worked on 30-minute theatre, Paul Temple, Zed Cars, The Aneedin Line, Fall of Eagles, Play for Today, Until Death Us Do Part. Doctor Who wasn't his only brush with BBC science fiction, though. He designed the Blake 7 episode, Breakdown. He went freelance in the late 1970s, having worked on the BBC staff for nearly 20 years, although his first freelance job was actually for the corporation, designing the Innes Book of Records. The following year, he went to Kuwait and worked as a designer for the English-speaking channel KT2. Sadly, however, ill health continued to plague him and he had to be brought home from work in 1980, having become very poorly. A brain tumour had lain undetected and was making itself known. Poor eyesight and serious headaches were blighting him and eventually Peter collapsed. Back in Britain, and after bouts of radiotherapy which caused some improvement, an operation only managed to remove some of the tumour and he deteriorated. Eventually, on the hospital's advice, Gabby had to take the decision to take him off his medication and he died in his sleep on the 14th of November 1980. He was 54. His ashes were eventually taken to Poland, where they were buried in the family plot. He only ever gave one interview about Doctor Who to pioneering fans Jan Vincent Rudski and Stephen Payne, although they weren't allowed to record the conversation. With what we know now, this was probably more down to self-consciousness. He even asked his wife to make important phone calls because he felt self-conscious about his accent, than a lack of cooperation. They found him more than happy, Stephen and Jan, to discuss the show, and not the lofty disdainer of legend. He may only have worked on one episode of Doctor Who, and in fact, not the one I have been discussing in this broadcast. Well, not directly, even though his name is on the credits and his footprints can be discerned, but his contribution to this television legend that we all know and love is, well, let's just say it's bigger on the inside. References. Before I go, I need to acknowledge a debt to those doughty and diligent researchers whose work I have picked over and collated and cross-referenced to come up with much of the above. Richard Molesworth's Origins documentary on the BBC DVD Beginnings box set is one of the best programmes ever made about Doctor Who. It's very atmospheric, it's very detailed, and is brilliantly put together. The production subtitles on the story itself on that disc are the usual brilliance from Martin Wiggins. Richard Bignall's Nothing at the End of the Lane is available in PDF form online at a ludicrously cheap price and features the sort of arcane detail and fastidious research that is breathtaking. I am especially indebted to the work done by professional designer and Doctor Who fan Phil Newman for much of this particular episode, especially the material on Peter Brahatsky. More Brahatsky goodness came from a charming and very human piece in Doctor Who magazine from journalist Graham Kibble-White, and I would also like to thank Peter's son Alexis Brahatsky with whom I exchanged emails some years ago. Howe, Stammers and Walker, in their definitive books on the 60s, 70s and 80s, 
and each doctor in their handbooks deserve much praise for shaping our basic understanding of the developmental story of the entire show behind the scenes. And Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who The Early Years is a vital and valuable record in both words and oh-so-glorious pictures. There's also painstaking work from the team behind Doctor Who The Complete History. Now, I was one of them, but I didn't do any of the research-based stuff, so I'll mention some who I know did. Alistair McGowan, Richard Atkinson, Johnny Morris and editor John Ainsworth, and I'll nod apologetically at anyone I should have mentioned but haven't. That publication means we have something pretty definitive in print, following on from the groundwork done by Andrew Pixley's Peerless Archives articles in Doctor Who magazine. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's Complete History of Time Travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference. I walk in the shadows of giants, giants whose bags are stuffed full of photocopies and whose houses are doubtless filled with bumpth. That's it for now. It's a great first episode though, isn't it? I mean, it's a cliché that Doctor Who fans are obsessed with it going downhill, but it's arguable that this is as close to perfection as Doctor Who has ever done. What a way to introduce the series. What a set of ingredients. The theme, the TARDIS both inside and out, the sound effects, they still crop up in some form in the show today. Director Warris Hussain's camera prowls through the inky blackness with great atmosphere, and the story beats hold our attention perfectly. There's not a line that is wasted, not a moment that doesn't thrill or beguile. The regulars are all fabulous, only Carol Ann Ford could, and indeed did, feel hard done by, in that the smokier, more distanced alienness she brought to the pilot would perhaps have been more interesting to play week in, week out than the imperiled teenager that Susan often ended up as. Necessary, maybe, for TV at the time, but a shame, as Ford clearly has a strange, enigmatic quality which, when she channels it, is really effective. Jacqueline Hill and William Russell are just fabulous, pitch perfect, likeable, good at the drama and solid foundations on which to build our understanding of this odd new show. And William Hartnell is magnificent, cussedly rebuffing these idiot humans and alluding with a great sense of wonder to times and places we cannot possibly ponder. Have you ever thought what it's like to be wanderers in the fourth dimension, he asks? Mate, I've been doing it all my life because of you. Coming next, a shadow falls. The TARDIS takes its very first trip through time and the Doctor decides to have a smoke. But where there's smoke, there's fire, which is good news in some ways and really bad news in others, and leads us to the Cave of Skulls. That's next time. Thanks so much for listening to Doctor Who Too Much Information. There's a supplemental podcast to this episode which contains even more arcane facts. A biography of each of the Coal Hill schoolchildren extras, for example. Everything you need to know about what else was on on Saturday the 23rd of November and some extracts from the press coverage of the show. This will be initially an exclusive release for patrons. As it's ultra-geeky, it needn't be considered essential information, and I have to hold something back at first as I get used to this patron, podcast, self-funding, self-producing melange that I find myself in, but it will find its way out there eventually. Bear with me while I find a balance. This has been Doctor Who. Too much information. Written and narrated by me, Toby Hayden. With thanks to Mark Ayres, Jenny at Blue Box 99, Chris Boyle, Oliver Crocker, Peter Crocker, Richard Bignall, Joseph Lidster, Anthony Townsend and Phil Newman. Technical assistance was by Russell Parker and the series consultant is Richard Bignall. The music for this podcast was specially composed by Wayne Shepherd.
and I'd like to extend my sincere thanks to patrons, without whom I'd be up a creek without either a paddle or any self-esteem whatsoever. They are Jenny at Blue Box 99, John Deere, Chris Dunford Kelk, Siobhan Galichon, Ian Key, Luke Atkins, Peter Adamson, Will Brooks, Peter Byatt, Paul Carrington, James Gould, Joe Llewellyn, David Mathewman, Stuart Mitchell, Nathan Moore, Melvin Pena, John Rivers, Len Stewart, Nick Temple, Apollo C. Vermouth, Michael Williams, and Adam Westwood. James Blackett, Hugh Buchtman, Susan Christian, Steve Churchill, Paul Cook, Peter Crocker, Dave Curran, Michael Dennis, Tim Dickinson, Pete Dillon Trenchard, Paul Dykes, Andrew East, David Gillespie, Charles Gears, Simon Guerrier, Paul J. Guest, Simon Hodges, Sam Hollingsworth, Christopher Joyce, Judith Jackson, Jeff Kaplan, Andy Kitching, Pip Maidley, Nick Mellish, Russell Parker, Ken Patterson, Monsieur Poirot, Gavin Rymill, Jim Sankster, Keith Say, Paul Shields, Richard Smith, David Spencer, Adam Stone, Paul Taylor Greaves, Sidney Trote, Alistair Wallace, John Williams, Sidney Wilson, and Pascal Gilka. Next episode, The Cave of Skulls. Or, I needed this like I need a hole in the head. Please consider supporting these podcasts, which do take approximately forever to put together and are done pretty much single-handedly, by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Toby or by making a one-off donation at ko-fi.com forward slash Toby And if you can review and rate positively at all those pesky outlets where podcasts are found, then that will help massively. And when it's worked and everybody knows about them and loves them, then I'll stop having to ask. But we're not there yet. Do join my mailing list at www.tobyhaydoke.com and don't forget to subscribe to the official Toby Haydoke YouTube channel. Keep shining the light in the darkness. You are not alone. (laughs) 